Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analyst, JP Gounder, to discuss why your firm may need an employee bill of rights to thrive in the age of automation. Welcome, JP. Thank you for having me. So this notion of an employee bill of rights, what exactly do we mean by that? Because this could be a new thing for most leaders or firms to be considering. So what we were thinking when we put this research together was that, um, you know, in the United States in 1791, there was a Bill of Rights that were a set of inalienable rights for every citizen. Um, that's more of an inspiration than a literal um, intention of, on our part with this piece of research. What we're hoping, though, is that leaders will step outside of the day-to-day, um, the imperatives that everyone faces as a leader every day, to drive more revenue, to serve customers, and say, are there some fundamental principles about the relationship that our company has, the promise that we keep to our employees, and how is that going to change as we start to implement more artificial intelligence and automation? And so this should serve as a provocative piece that helps people to think through this. We don't literally mean that everyone should take our five points as a Bill of Rights, but we do think that leaders need to have a set of inalienable things that sit outside of the day-to-day imperatives that constitute part of the implicit contract with how we relate to our employees. And if you do this, hopefully the idea is that your employee experience will improve. So let's talk about why at this moment in time, of course, you mentioned, you know, the 1700s, there's been so many big shifts in the workforce and in labor between then and now, and we haven't had a Bill of Rights. Why do we need one right now. Yeah. Well, certainly that influx of AI and automation is a, is a key driver for the way we think about this. Um, when someone brings in robotic process automation, RPA, a very common automation that we're using in the workforce, it actually fundamentally changes my job as an employee. Um, maybe I was a financial reconciliation analyst, and I've been doing that in a manual way. I, I look at all of the incoming and outgoing uh, bills and, and payments. I just, you know, uh, reconcile that. Now we can use a bot to do that work. And when that happens, that person's job changes. They may have been doing that for 30 years. Another interesting example comes in the physical robotics space. The company Frito-Lay had this traditional machine that people had used for 35 years, something like that. And one day they kind of pulled it out and they put in a different machine. And the transition was a little too quick because people had spent 35 years making sure that this one machine was always working. So there is a change management challenge that arises when we start to introduce technologies that are actually generally meant to improve both the performance of the company but of the employee as well. They're often meant to augment us and make us better. But, you know, most people can't deal with change without a process. Uh, And so today I think the, the acceleration of that trend means that we need to step back and say, what are some things that every employee should be able to expect out of their relationship with our company? What I heard in what you just said then is the assumption that those people can adapt to a new working style, new skills alongside robotics and robots, whereas there have been jobs in the past that just go away, frankly. But your assumption, at least in the piece of research, is for those people whose jobs will morph versus be eliminated. Is that more accurate? I think that's fair. Although one of our points in, in this Bill of Rights is you know, I have the right to uh, expect that I have a career path 
whether it's inside or outside of my company. There will be some jobs that are eliminated. You know, I'm, there, we have, um, Craig LeClaire and I have done some work on this where we've sort of said there are different kinds of jobs. Those that are cubicle jobs, if you are a data entry person and all you do really is you type in the results of something that's on a physical piece of paper, that kind of job is definitely going to go away. Now, what we would hope is that organizations will invest in upskilling and reskilling to help that person become comfortable working side by side with bots. What will go away are certain tasks rather than the jobs themselves. But at the end of, you know, 10 years, there will be jobs that go the way of the uh, elevator operator or the telephone operator, right? Things that used to be done by people that are no longer done. But we do have an opportunity to keep our talent, keep our, our, our employee experience, our morale up by, by helping those people find new opportunities um, within that automation economy. So a stated commitment to your employees versus that task or that role is no longer available and they're moving on. You're right. going to be leaving those folks in the dust, so to speak. You know, it's funny. Most companies don't realize whether they do it explicitly or implicitly. Mm. There is this sort of uh, familial promise that we make to our employees. And Google's been in the news for this a lot lately, right? They used to have a moniker of don't be evil. They kind of retired that. But a large part of their workforce was recruited under that philosophy. And now they're making some different choices around some of the things that they do. And it's creating friction, right? So it's also about knowing your own culture and understanding where you're starting and where your um, where your starting point is, what promises you've made. Again, no one is saying that every employee must always be retained. Sure, this is right. unrealistic in capitalism. But what it says is that you're doing the best that you can to have that sort of implicit relationship with your employee to help give them opportunities, and hopefully they will be able to uh, change as you change. But oftentimes companies go into these uh, automation efforts imagining you know, that there's going to be this huge change in the labor force. And when we talk to companies, it's usually less than they imagine. They find that the people were actually quite valuable. The Google example, just to be contrarian, almost makes me wonder if there is a complete opposite way that some companies will go here in that because actually of the accelerated automate, automation trend, that people will start showing up to work as just work. Right. And start divorcing, actually, so much of the, their meaning associated with it. This is not necessarily a great outcome. It's just a hypothesis. Right. That we put so much stock into the value and meaning of the company um, that is proving to be a very slippery slope and also a, a very loose contract. Right. Right. And I, I agree. And it, it depends on what vertical you're in, what your right. business model is. One interesting point, though, is we tend to think. I think just generally when mm -hmm. I talk to, to clients about this, we tend to think of employee experience as a knowledge worker thing. It's actually an every worker thing. And a really good example of how you can turn that uh, issue you were just talking about on its head is Starbucks. In um, the quick service restaurant space, the typical annual turnover is 150 to 400%. That's a huge turnover rate. And it incurs costs for the company because you have to onboard people. There's a discontinuity in the customer experience. Starbucks is 65, and that is because Starbucks has a very strong EX focus. Um, for that vertical, that's an incredible, incredible number. And it's also good because, after all, many people like to go in and, and see their barista and have it be the same person. So the customer benefits, but the employees are, are getting an experience that actually makes them want to stay. So maybe let's dive into some of yeah. the, the rights that you've stated in, in the report. Um, and I think that 
we had talked about RPA and working with technology and this notion of having the right to have technology adapt to me is, um, I think everyone, like at a human level, right. we we empathize here because, you know, we're always bending over backwards to try to make something work. Like how many times am I going to say something to my Alexa before I start freaking out um, or my two-year-old starts freaking <laughs> out. Um, but can you maybe dig in a little bit there as to what exactly does that mean? So the, one of the visions that we have for the future of work is this idea of working side by side with robots. And that is a broad statement. It doesn't mean literal robots. It means, you know, when we're working, we could have an RPA bot. We could have intelligence embedded in software like salesforce.com. We could be working with an AI system. But the idea is that we are increasingly going to be working with increasingly intelligent software. Okay, so we have this assistance. Um, and the idea of the right to have technology adapt to me, not the other way around, is inspired by some uh, bad practices, if you will. Many years ago, there was the Palm Pilot, and this was a precursor to today's smartphones. Incredibly innovative, very powerful in its own way. But one thing that it required was it, it, you actually had to learn a shorthand language to use the stylus pen to write um, on this device. So they're literally, they're saying, please buy our device and then learn how to write shorthand. Um, and if you go check out the letter K, it looks very different from what you would think of as a K. So that's an example of um, the, the cognitive burden that's placed on an employee to completely change their way of working to accommodate software or, in this case, hardware. So the thought here is that the best practice is going to be to look at the employee's journey, to understand what she's doing already, to figure out those intersection points, those moments in time along that journey where technology can help them to be more productive, more effective, take something off of their plate, um, rather than starting at the premise that we're bringing in this new software, everybody's got to change everything. Try to make it as much of a process of, uh, you know, the human being has some value, bring them into the trials, bring them into the process of even designing how the software is implemented, uh, rather than changing everything up. Yeah, and you use the word journey there. So a technique like journey mapping could be used from an employee's perspective, right, to make sure that you understand sort of where the rub could be between the technology and the employee. Absolutely. Our CX practice has lots of employee journey maps as well. Yep. It places a phenomenal burden on the partner that you've chosen as well, right? Is it's only so much a company can control in terms of the implementation and rollout if fundamentally, as an example, something like Salesforce is difficult to use, right? Right. right. And, and Salesforce is a really interesting example because clearly there are things about Salesforce where you're buying into their model, Right. But it's how you get there as mm -hmm. much as it is, you know, exactly what that model looks like. Um, you can make choices. You have developers within Salesforce that allow you to make choices around what that process looks like. How is it sequenced? And sometimes you can say, okay, there is a new way to do things, but we're going to take our employees on a journey as to how and why we're getting there. And that would be one of the best practices here. But for many things, I'll give you the RPA example. It's quite a stark one. Sometimes you know, you, someone has an existing bot and they're like, wow, this, this does this job better. If it doesn't intersect with how the human being does their job, there's going to be, uh, you know, space between them that's not good. What needs to happen is human and machine working in concert and every RPA bot, even the most unattended, which is the ones that run off and do stuff on their own, they generate exceptions. They, they can't do everything. 
machines just aren't that smart. So what we need to do is bring people into it, make sure people also know that they are that their skills, their judgment, their creativity is valued, and that the machine is there to make everyone more successful. Mm -hmm. Which sort of leads me to the second point of uh, empowering the employee, right? That the employee understands their value in the equation here, not that you're just a cog in the machine, so to speak. Right. And also using the data that you are gathering throughout these interactions for empowerment rather than for surveillance. Mm, Now, this could be controversial um, because you look at Chinese companies and actually surveillance is becoming very core to both political and um, corporate governance in China. So that is to say maybe under that model there are ways to to surveil that are yielding business value. But for most of the world and and certainly the companies that are interested in employee experience as a discipline – The idea here is to give every individual autonomy, give them some empowerment, give them inspiration. So if I have access to data as an employee where I can say, oh, here's how I benchmark against peers. Here's some things maybe I could do differently or better and maybe I'd get a better outcome. If it's positioned in that way and it's not individualized so that my manager is sort of looking over my shoulder, um, we believe and, and a lot of the psychological literature suggests, number one, that that creates a sense of psychological safety that the employee feels like um, they are valued. And so there is a way to to gather data on performance, aggregate it, give individuals access to it, uh, and give managers a broader view. I I could see that, especially I feel like there's employees are asking for better data to do their jobs better. And that includes things like, do we have too many meetings? I think this was actually raised in this piece of research or maybe mm-hmm. another yep. one. It's like, there's data to help me do my job better and there's data to lord it over my head or potentially for performance. And to be honest, I mean, as a as an employer, you do need some data that on people's performance to help run your business properly. I guess what you're basically advocating for is transparency, transparency, transparency. Because people are going to collect the data and they need to collect the data. Right. And the intention, I think, matters. You know, to to your point, uh, Macy's, they did this workplace analytics exercise. They collected data. And what they realized was that people probably were spending about four hours a week in meetings that were simply not that necessary. Um, And they had data to back it up. And the thing that they did that was really interesting and cool was they said, you know, we think this is dragging you down, so we're eliminating these meetings using uh, some different tools mm-hmm. and techniques, and we're going to give you that time. We're not filling it. We know that what you have to do requires actually more time and flow, and you don't currently have it. Um, and so the, the intention is there. Definitely agreed that individual-level metrics matter in business, um, but I think that the thing here is that these new AI and automation techniques are summoning data uh, workplace analytics uh, that Microsoft has can be used for good or evil. And it's simply looking at how much time do I spend in Outlook and PowerPoint and Word, and it can learn a lot about you. How do you use that data? Um, ideally, you use it as as yourself. The next one is super interesting to me because this is the right to resources that help me understand and use AI and automation. Is this really pointing to training and upskilling and learning and development? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, um, I have another report where I said learning and development will become a superpower for organizations in the era of AI and automation. Mm-hmm. Today, um, we there is $90 billion of spending on corporate training and learning and development. However, much of that is focused in areas of either really soft skills, like collaboration, or it's really specific, like 
you need to learn how to do pivot tables in Excel. And unfortunately, what we need now is more of a synthesis. We need a learning and development function that honors this idea of working side by side with robots, that human-machine interaction requires both hard and soft skills, um, that not everyone has to be a, a STEM or programmer, but that everyone needs to have a certain set of skills about working with these increasingly intelligent entities. And so the, the advocacy here is to say, you know, give, um, make sure that your learning and development function is thinking more closely about the holistic set of things that people need to have to master these new systems. How does, you, you talk a lot about in your research, robotics quotient, how does that play here and you know, how should leaders be thinking about the readiness of their employees and their readiness as well, right? Yeah, it was a secret segue, right? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> implicitly I was talking about uh, the robotics quotient, which is RQ, the measure of how well both individuals and organizations can adapt to, collaborate with, and drive business results from AI and automation. And the idea here is that um, the people have to bring something to the table uh, but you have to help your people bring it to the table, mm -hmm. right? So there are things um, there are things like algorithmic IQ. Now, I don't need to know um, how to design an algorithm for Salesforce if I'm using it, but I need to know things like, well, if I do this, then what will happen? What levers can I pull? What, what are the limits of the system? It's very much like, I like to use the example of my dad, who's 87. You know, if he goes to the ATM, he knows he can get money, but he doesn't have a full understanding of the range of things one could do at an ATM. Some of those things he's, he's like, I'd have to talk to a teller for that. And it's so, but that's a teachable thing, right? You can, you can learn more about that. So the same thing is true here. And there's also an element of uh, psychological management, right? So there's, there's a segue. Another concept from RQ is called uh, uh, constructive ambition. You may have hired people who were very, very comfortable doing a repetitive manual task. And they've just sort of gotten into that Zen mode of executing on that. You need to bring them up and say, look, we're going to be giving you a new tool. It's going to be a bot, and you're going to be managing that bot. And this is a great skills acquisition opportunity, and it is an opportunity for you to exercise more judgment. It sounds like, and this also hints at some of our research, that what you're saying is um, the old Southwest Airlines hire for attitude, not for skill. And in this case, we don't know exactly what skills we're going to be asking people to have. So we're looking for people who are adaptable and curious and have a learning mindset. We have other research about this that I'm yeah. sort of teeing up here. Um, but I, I think a lot of leaders may listen saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to need to train people to do. And I don't know what that learning program is going to look like. But what might a learning program look like that actually teaches and can you teach adaptability? You know, you know behavioral psychology comes into play, organizational psychology mm -hmm. Um, in our future fit research that James McQuivey has done, which links into RQ and EX very closely, um, he has this idea of expansive worldview. Mm -hmm. And that is a really interesting one. I think I've improved that myself. Um, this is as opposed to a zero-sum kind of mentality. Right. Where, you know, you're sort of vying for scarce resources. Expansive means if we work together, we're all going to create more value together. Um, and that can be applied equally well to technology, right? This, this machine isn't taking away things that, you know, I'm doing in my job. It's actually helping me to do my job in this exponentially better way. So organizational uh, and behavioral psychology, a lot of it comes down to leaders. Uh, leaders are going to have to set examples. They're going to have to change uh, the way the, the culture works, which, we, as we know, is a long-term effort. I think you're tying back into the idea of a need for a bill of rights in terms of you can't have an expansive worldview if you're feeling insecure 
or in, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously you need your basic needs met, but then in a workforce, it's even more than that, right? Is it, you're going to go into everything with a very skittish and scared, not everybody, but most people, right, would go into things that way if they're thinking, I don't have a job, you're changing everything, right. et cetera. So I sort of understand better now as we've talked the need for the Bill of Rights, which I admit I was a bit skeptical about because nobody can be guaranteed anything, right? Uh, but you can't get people to grow if they're feeling insecure, period. I mean, that's sort of a basic of right. human behavior. That's right. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. the psychological safety and the skepticism go hand in hand. And right. it, can, it can inhibit the success of a project. Uh, you know, I wrote about an example of a company that was putting in some software in a dispatch center. Now, the dispatch center was, um, you know, controlling like cable uh, visitors who would go to houses, right? So they have tens of thousands of field service technicians, and it's all it was all done on phone for 35 years. And the dispatch people were very skeptical of the software. They thought it would take their job. They knew they could do a better job, et cetera. So this particular instance, um, the company decided to do a hands-free Tuesday. And that meant that the dispatchers didn't do any of the work for that day. They had to prove that the software had value. And the dispatchers thought the system would fall apart. And what they learned was it was actually pretty good. There were things that human judgment could have made it better, but it kind of proved to them that, number one, this is valuable, and number two, it actually would be even better with me and I'm still really important. And that's a, I mean, not everybody can do a hands-free Tuesday, but in that particular instance, it was a really powerful educative moment. And from then on, they had great acceptance. Yep. There's something to be said, I think we started the conversation here about the transparency, like that's mm -hmm. at a very human level. If you're not sure what's going on, if you don't know what these technologies are doing and you don't have that visibility of what are your, what's your leadership even thinking about here? How could our firm evolve? Not knowing is very disconcerting, but these sort of as stated commitments that we are going to try our best to connect the dots and share with you employees what we're thinking about here and how you fit into the picture is very powerful. Yeah, Unless to, the, the goal is to purely cut costs mm. and, and eliminate jobs. I mean, I think we're sort of assuming we're not talking to those companies right, right. now, yeah. right? right? I mean, in this podcast, like that's yeah. not, that's not the target audience because they, they can't meaningfully do that. And there are companies that are looking to sure. change the way that they more efficiently run Right. I assume. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think even if you're doing that, you can do it in as EX positive a way as possible because the people who are going to stay, you want true. you want right. them to not feel, uh, you know, I've talked to a few companies that did some RPA and they kind of, they knew they were going to make some uh, workforce reductions. One of the things they tried to do was to make it a one-time incident where they articulated, this is the new world. This is how we're changing. This is uh, now your job is going to get better. And here's how the RPA bot is going to take away all these things that you used to do. I talked to a dairy company who did this in their finance department. They got rid of 8% of the people. And uh, that was challenging and always is. Um, and frankly, high EX companies are not big on layoffs. But in this case, they had to do it. But the other people, the 92%, their jobs changed for the better. Their EX scores went up. Um, and they felt that they were getting more done. Um, to your point as well, you know, there, there were two data points really quickly about this. Um, in the RQ battery, we asked information workers about, you know, are your leaders ready for this? And across the board, it was about 22% kind of thought that they were ready for the AI automation revolution. And then there's an individualized uh, dimension to this. We have a statement. Um, I understand my, my career path in a world of AI and automation is clear to me. Only 18% 
of people said that they agreed with that. So as, again, as these technologies start coming in, the baseline for your employees is uncertainty, fear, risk aversion. What could go wrong? Right. Yeah. And that's obviously one of the, the rights that you state here is to have that clearly defined career path and ensuring that there is a path for your employees to to move on and whether that's within your organization or beyond you know that's that's a commitment that you need to determine yeah i mean outplacement is is an option sometimes or uh people could be segued into working for one of your providers it rather depends like sure. a contingent workforce provider in some countries, this is easier than others, right? In the United States, we can change the labor composition very rapidly. In a place like Germany, it's far less frequent that people get laid off. They have protections in place legally, but they also have a very tight relationship between the providers of education and employers, right? So if you trained at a particular vocational school and you've been working in one of these areas, perhaps there's an easy outplacement. Uh, but again, we can't guarantee everyone's jobs, you know, but what we can do is we can say um, everyone kind of deserves a career path. Those who are going to be leaving us also may, you know, there may be ways to help them either by equipping them with skills uh, that will help them down the line. Um, and that also redounds to the people who are still at the company. Again, if they see the treatment of other people, then that helps them have more sense of safety. And finally, let's talk about the right to focus on my work and shut out distractions. This may be my favorite one. <laughs> it, it is my favorite. It also feels a little bit the, the like an outlier mm. um, to the other ones in terms of, okay, changes are coming versus here's, I mean, everybody has a distraction problem today. Right. You, you know, so how does this one relate to automation humming versus just the current state of working, which is very distraction heavy? Right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, maybe dystopically, um, if you, are, if you were a Slack user, you may have learned that Slack bots are increasingly pinging you for attention. Um, Slack does a really great job with this. It's no knock on the platform. But the problem is, as we have more intelligent software and intelligent agents, if they start to autonomously demand, make demands upon your time and mm -hmm. energy, it can become an incredible quagmire of overcommunication. And so what we've seen is that companies are saying, look, um, we need to be a little judicious in how we uh, design some of these experiences. Andrew Hogan on our CX team is looking very deeply at this, the human uh, computer interaction design, because it can be a huge distraction. And of course, Dave Johnson's been writing about for years, as you say, you know, generally speaking, uh, getting an IM could pull me out of flow or my VPN crashes. Technology has always played a role in our ability to focus. But when we start bringing autonomy to the software, then it could get even worse. Got it. That makes sense. What would your advice be um, for companies in terms of urgency? And specifically, if you had to go out to an audience today and say, hey, X industry or type of company, you need to start thinking about an employee bill of rights very quickly or you're going to be in hot water. Who, does, who would that be? Who would you be speaking to? Yeah. Well, usually uh, it is a combination of people in CIO's office, in uh, operations and business, and in HR. And I have worked with some clients where I've gone and spoken to all three of those audiences because if you are the major personnel manager in business units, you really care about the future of how this is going to come down. I think there's urgency today because the best practices for EX are coincident with many of these uh, Bill of Rights. So in other words, you should be starting to do some of these things anyway. 
establishing transparency and trust with your employees um, will reap benefits in the AI and automation space. Uh, treating people, you know, with uh, as much respect as possible, giving them opportunity and upskilling them, whether that's tech-related or not, again, sets a predicate. So I think there are things you should be doing no matter what. But I will say um, there's extra urgency for organizations who are jumping into RPA, which is the fastest-growing area. Um, often that will hit in shared services functions like IT, finance, HR, other operational and, and uh, shared services roles. Uh, same thing with call center. They need to uh, very quickly not just experiment with the technology, but bring along the people, the culture, the leaders, um, and the change management alongside of that. That is the essence of uh, the RQ thesis, for example. And finally, I actually think C-level executives should be thinking about this because it is part and parcel of my commitment to innovation that AI and automation will be playing a role in helping me serve my customers better. It will impact my employees, and therefore I want to make sure that I have this on my radar and, and delegated to the right people today. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.